Listening to Ideas on Trapped with Toby Lawson. Welcome to another episode of Ideas on Trap podcast, where we discuss ideas on economic development and prosperity. It has been a year since the whole world has been gripped by the COVID 19 pandemic, and in that period, the ability of individual countries to adopt public health measures that limit the spread of the virus have come under scrutiny. One subject from the sub-discipline of economic development that has become relevant in that period is state capacity. State capacity refers to the general administrative capability of a state. Governments in different countries have certain primary functions. One of such is the provision of public goods like roads, security, and an unbiased legal system. States or countries differ in their ability to provide these public goods as evidenced by the different level of public goods in different countries. My guest on today's episode is Mark Koyama. He is a professor of economic history at George Mason University and he has studied state capacity extensively and how the rule of law emerged in societies. His recent book, which analyzes the subject, is called Persecution and Toleration. It is an excellent read and I had a good conversation with Mark. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. One thing I would really like you to first clarify is the concept of state capacity, which you have written quite a lot about. So what is it exactly? I know it can mean a lot of things. For example, in your book, you say it's the enforcement capacity of the government, the ability to raise taxes, and the ability to provide public goods. But there are also other ways in which people use the concept of state capacity. In some cases, it can even mean the authoritarian capacity of a government, you know, like in China or in Rwanda. So how would you clarify the concept of state capacity generally? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one way to think about this, which might make it easier for readers, is to think about what's known as the institutional turn in development economics, which occurred in the 1980s and 1990s. So um, if you think about accounts of why some countries have grown rapidly and other countries have not grown um by the 1980s and 1990s, a lot of economists and World Bank and IMF officials were emphasizing things like uh, private property rights, rule of law, the strength on the executive, or the provision of, of basic public goods as key ingredients for um, economic growth and development. But then the challenge is if, if everyone agrees and may understand what the institutional reforms a state needs to do in order to get growth going then why can't they implement them? Why is it easier for some countries to implement them than others? Why uh, some policies such as 
infant industry protection or import substitution seem to be very damaging in, say, Latin America. They lead to corruption and cronyism and being impede productivity growth. But in Taiwan or Singapore, they're less costly. They seem to work okay. Uh, so development economists drew on this concept called state capacity to try to explain like what makes a state effective at doing what it sets out to do. And they broke it down into the components you mentioned. So one component is fiscal capacity, it's the ability to raise taxes. And to raise taxes in a way which is not going to impose big costs on the economy at large. So a state which can't raise a lot of taxes won't be able to do very much. And it will end up you know, being very ineffective and more prone to being captured by rent-seeking interests. And then the other term we use is administrative capacity. Sometimes people call this legal capacity. And that's also about the ability of a state to kind of pass laws or legislation, which are actually going to be implemented and go have an effect on the country in question. For example, one of, um, one of the papers in this literature by Senius Mikolopoulos and Elias Papandreou looks in um, sub-Saharan Africa and looks at whether the institutions matter for the country as a whole, or do they just matter in the capital? And they find they're just implemented in the capital. Because the states don't have the ability to actually enforce laws or collect taxes in the hinterland. In the countryside. So that's kind mm-hmm. of a baseline concept mapped out, I think. There are criticisms and challenges of it. And we, we're seeing some of this in the discussion of COVID-19, because people often link the ability of some states like China or uh, Taiwan or South Korea, their ability to respond very effectively and quickly to contain COVID is sometimes related to their state capacity. But then on, on the other hand, a country like the United States or the United Kingdom, did a relatively bad job. Despite having measurably high state capacity, they have, you know, they have a lot of fiscal capacity, a lot of administrative capacity. They botched the initial response to COVID. But then on the other hand, they're doing well on the vaccines. So I think when you're applying concepts of state capacity to a fast-moving event like COVID-19, then it becomes more of a challenge. And we see some limitations with the concept. But overall, obviously, I think it's a very important way to think about institutions and development it's a very important framing for thinking about these questions in economic history and development economics. It's interesting you talked about its application to the pandemic. And I seem to remember clearly that a lot of people were saying that China building a hospital in 10 days was some kind of state capacity flex, whereas countries like the US, the UK were struggling with the pandemic response. And to them, that is some kind of indicator of the decline of state capacity. And of course, like you said, with the vaccines, it's pretty much the opposite. So a lot of these Eastern nations that we look up to have really struggled to be innovative Mm. in that area. So there's one specific observation by, I think, Vincent Geloso that I'd like you to respond to, which is he seemed to think that state capacity is a correlative filter, that is, States become rich before acquiring capacity. How would you respond to that? Could be part of the story. So I don't necessarily want to say that state capacity is like the sole or unique driving factor responsible for modern economic growth, because I I don't believe, I think innovation is that. If anything matters, it's innovation. So, so the argument is you get rich. In order to stay rich, you need some kind of state capacity to defend yourself, maybe from being invaded or, or colonized. So that could be part of it. But I think we can also identify, at least historically, 
key links between state capacity and growth. And I don't think it's right. I mean, even if you just need state capacity to defend yourself from being predated upon by rival powers, then you still need state capacity. It's still important. But I think it's also important in um, creating a unified domestic market, you know, uh, reducing internal barriers to trade, reducing internal rent seeking. So one of the, I think, important lessons we've learned from studying European economic history is that before the rise of modern states, when you look at how much tax revenue that the state is collecting, a centralized state, it's very small. So, you know, the English king or the French king, relative to modern central governments, they don't actually collect a lot of taxation as a proportion of the GDP. That doesn't mean that the ordinary people weren't paying a lot in taxes or rents. Or, it wasn't the state which was collecting, it was local cities, local lords, they, they had their own taxes, their own ways of extracting revenue from the peasants. So there was a lot of rent seeking, it's just decentralized. And with modern states, you centralize that. And when you centralize it, you actually reduce some of the deadweight loss. Uh, so for example, me and Noel Johnson talk about a lot in a book, and I say in a paper we wrote, an exposure to economic history, of these taxes on the River Rhine. So the River Rhine's an important trade artery running through Western Germany. And um, in the Middle Ages and the early modern period, hundreds of different lords could tax it. And as a result, they each overtaxed it, and the trade just dried up on the River Rhine. And when Napoleon came along, he took it all into French hands, and he just centralized the tax collection on the river. And he ended up reducing the taxes a lot, but the revenue went up, and the trade went up. When Germany unified afterwards, they obviously did not restore the old system of hundreds of different tolls and taxes. So even if it's a corrective filter... Even if that's your, the minimum weight you're willing to give to state capacity, it's still pretty important, I think, in explaining kind of economic development, at least in Europe. I study European and Asian kind of history. I don't study sub-Saharan Africa or Nigeria, but I, I think it seems pretty important in understanding you know, what's happened in Africa since independence as well. Yeah. One other area I want you to talk about is how state capacity applies to the control of violence which North and Wallace spent a lot of time talking about in their book. And it seemed to be the relevant factor when describing the absence of state capacity in Africa, because there's a lot of internal conflict. And most of the time, the central government struggle controlling various arms groups. So how much does that really matter for economic development generally? Yeah, I mean, so I think that's a crucial, crucial question. And so, yeah, in European history, you go from the medieval period or any modern period where private lords have their own armies, and then you get the state being centralized. And so this rise of state capacity is often correlated with the centralization of violence, the demilitarization of an ability, the formation of a monopoly of violence in the hands of a state. I mean, I see persecution toleration and the work being all done very much in line of the work of Doug North and any other book you're mentioning with uh, John Wallace and Barry Weingast. So very much connected. And so as a first pass, what the building of state capacity did was allowed European states to build armies. This resulted in a lot of interstate violence, but it did lead to suppression of a lot of violence within the state. And so you're training off these two things. On the one hand, you get more violent external wars, but you have less localized violence within your territory. And I think from an economic perspective, you know, people in the West often understate or underestimate how bad violence must be for just economic planning. You know, if you expect there's some probability of being attacked, you're going to have to, you have to, go, you have to invest a lot of resources in guarding against it. There's a lot of deadweight loss associated with localized violence and a lot of uncertainty, which is going to deter investment. 
So I think the control of violence is a crucial part of the rise of state capacity in, in the early modern period. And it's really striking. I think you might mention Stephen Pinker's work later, but if you look at the homicide rates over long periods of history, as far as we know, at least, medieval homicide rates are very high. So a lot of people are dying violent deaths in the Middle Ages. But by the 19th century, so like not even recently, I'm talking about, you know, by 1800 or 1820, 1830, Europe is very safe. England is very, very safe in London. So murder rates are very, very low already. So we've achieved that control of violence fairly early on. America is always more violent than Europe for whatever reason. Yeah. So would you say that is some kind of nod towards Charles Tilly's war mixed states hypothesis? Yeah, what we're saying is consistent with that. I think the caveat that people have raised with Tilly's hypothesis is that in the European case, war does seem to make the state. Whether it's the only factor or there's other factors that you can dispute, but um, the only criticism people have had of the Tilly hypothesis is that war doesn't always make the state. So wars in other parts of the world don't seem to necessarily make states. I think one example people often give is India. So in India, before the British established their kind of empire, but in, in the 17th and 18th century, there's a lot of war. Yet the Indian states don't seem to develop along the lines they do in Europe. That's one counterexample. So you have to ask, under what circumstances does war make the state? But yeah, it's consistent with that line of reasoning. Also, one other critic of, uh, in this case, it was a reaction specifically to your survey article with, with Noah Johnson was Brian Kaplan, where he described the concept of state capacity itself as a slay of hand, so to speak, that it doesn't really explain anything and it's just scholars looking for correlates, basically. I know you've also had that critique, but I mean, on the record, what would you say to him? Yeah, so I think it's um, misunderstanding what the purpose of this scholarship is, to be, uh, to be quite honest. So he's, he's assuming this thing where growth economists are always looking for one new thing to explain economic growth. And then when you dig into it, as we've discussed, actually, the concept is a bit messy. It has different components. And it's, it's a composite. So he thinks that if you want to dig deeper into identifying what this magical thing which causes growth really is, my perspective is different. It's along the lines I said to your initial question, which is to explain if you think that institutional reforms are crucial to economic growth, but then you look at the world and you see that some countries were better at doing kind of Washington consensus era free market or liberalizing reforms in other countries. And when you ask what allowed that to happen, then I think you need a, a concept which allows you to study the state. So whatever you think about the state, it's clear that, say, Singapore or South Korea, on, on many margins, have an effective state, whereas many other countries, the state is corrupt and it, it just doesn't get stuff done. Even if it wants to do things, it can't do them. So you want a concept which allows you to talk about that and study it. The fact that it's a difficult concept to define and it has multiple definitions, that doesn't mean you abandon the concept. It means you work harder at pinning down like, you know, what's driving it and studying it in more detail. So I, I take Brian's criticism, but then it just means we need to do more work pinning down what's going on in the state rather than disregarding kind of the state, which is the danger of the other position of a libertarian or too much of a public choice position is to say, a public choice position is to say, look, government always fails. Uh, there's a lot of rent-seeking. Whenever you give the state more power, just generate more incentive to rent-seek. So if you take that perspective, then it's difficult to understand why Singapore has a more effective government than Nigeria, for example, which is 
pretty hard to disagree with. But it's definitely, it's maybe a measure of our ignorance. We need to know more. One of the things uh, your questions made me think about with response to COVID and actually recent discussions of state capacity is, is state capacity like a long lasting thing? America has high state capacity because it always does. Or can you lose it? Like, does it go away? Because <laughs> people in the US, the UK as well, you know, we look at countries like China where they can build infrastructure very quickly, whereas in the US, it's very, very costly and like slow just to build the metro one line further. So it's true, we need to think more about state capacity and we need to think about how quickly it can erode and how quickly it can be built. But I don't think that's a good reason for like just not exploring or not using the concept. I'll put one question to you, though. In fairness to Brian, I'm not speaking for him by any means. So, but doesn't he have a point when you take a look at an event like the Industrial Revolution, for example, which much of the scholarship would agree that it's like the biggest story economically in human history. But much of the scholarship hasn't given that much weight to state capacity as an explainer. It's always about technology or the culture of growth, as Mokiru put it, or some kind of Malthusian story if we look at the work of Clark. So from that perspective, doesn't Brian kind of have a point? So I'm happy to, to agree with that. So I definitely think those are the key factors for the British Industrial Revolution. There are two scholars I could think of who emphasize the capacity more. So there's a scholar called Pierre Brees who has a book comparing state capacity in China and England. And there's also Patrick O'Brien at the LSE, who also emphasizes this military state capacity angle very strongly. But I actually disagree with them. I'm much more along the lines of kind of a John McKeer's interpretation of innovation and a culture of growth being crucial. So I, I don't think state capacity was the critical, sufficient condition for modern economic growth at all. I would just say that for economic growth to be sustained and take place, it needed to be in a society which had a large enough unified market and was peaceful enough and was not likely to be invaded by foreign powers. And so it might be a necessary condition that Britain in the 18th century did have high state capacity. It's definitely not a sufficient condition. Let's talk about your book for a bit, which is fantastic, by the way. I, I love it very much. Yeah. And it also addresses something that is quite important, which is the rule of law in a society, which is also, I'm not sure what the empirics are, but is also quite necessary and important for the development and prosperity of a nation. So, like I said in my notes to you, I kind of see the story you tell or your analysis as a kind of new materialist story. It's exogenous in a way, because you talk a lot about the incentives that leaders face in trying to develop a state where the rule of law and toleration is the order. What I'm trying to get at is there is also a kind of, I don't want to say school of thought, but a kind of different story that puts the evolution of the rule of law down to something internal, either to humanity or to societies in general. Maybe something like the culture of a particular group or a particular people, maybe like the weird analysis by uh, the cultural evolutionist. What is your response or criticism of that story? 
Yeah, so that's a deep uh, question. It's a challenging question. So let's say the rule of law, just to simplify it, means something like treating people equally or, or something like that before the law, impartially. So I think that idea is quite persuasive. Like if you tell people that idea, it's in Christianity, it can be quite persuasive. So it has some appeal. So I don't want to dispute the appeal of the intellectual idea. The problem is if it runs against your self-interest or your inherited, like how things have always been done. And so my my view is that the impact of a new idea, say, you know, like a new idea of treating people equally before the law or some kind of impartiality, it's not going to make very much headway in a society where all the incentives are, let's just treat people based on their status treat nobles differently to commoners, treat Jews differently to Christians, treat members of our tribe get differently to those tribes. So I feel that ideas or cultural norms, they can be powerful when they're working with incentives, but if they're working against incentives, then it's more of a challenge. And so that's kind of how I think about it. So something is happening in Western Europe in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries hard to define but something is happening which is meaning that it's more in the self-interest of even elites to grant something closer to more equal treatment to non-elites um for their own good as well as like because these ideas are powerful so that's why we emphasize the material incentives but mm. yeah I, but I very much take the point it's can't be the material incentives alone and they are interacting with the ideas but i'm i'm less persuaded by accounts where it's just the ideas one of the things I really love about your book, which, again, it's my opinion, is that it kind of moves away from a deterministic view of human progress and places a lot of emphasis on the things we do and how we are constantly shaped by incentive, the environment, and all kinds of uh, human mechanisms, you know. Which kind of contrasts, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot on this, the enlightenment as the civilizer mm. story, which I know Pinker loves a lot from both his books about that. I mean, one of the things you disputed early in the book was how mythical the idea of widespread violence and prosecution in antiquity was. And I think the Enlightenment story sort of relies on that, you know, mm-hmm. that our prehistory is rife with violence and war and all kinds of unpleasant things. But there was this discontinuous event that sort of changed things. And again, I'm always tempted to ask, so why then? Why the Enlightenment? What was different? You know, mm-hmm. but I mean, reading your book shed some light that it's really an interplay of a lot of things and that we are humans. Anyway. That's, yeah, it's very useful. I think it's, yeah, I think it's right, exactly right. I hadn't thought about it quite like that, but it's exactly right. Because if you, um, my view is both the pro and anti-enlightenment people place too much emphasis on the enlightenment, even though I'm a fan of the enlightenment. I'm a big fan of it. But the, the yeah, Stephen Pink in his Enlightenment Now book places too much mythology where you think before the enlightenment there was endless wars of religion endless religious persecution everyone was prejudiced and then after the enlightenment there's some kind of um, you know humanistic notions of science and progress and rationality and then on the left people want to attribute to the enlightenment things like racism or colonialism all these bad things get attributed to enlightenment which is not very useful either because all those things happened before the enlightenment so yeah it's a more gradual process definitely 
and it's more contingent. If you read Enlightenment thinkers as well, they all had blind spots. So, you know, Voltaire is a big fan of religious toleration for Protestants and, you know, he's a real critic of the Catholic Church, but he says a lot of anti-Semitic stuff and he's kind of probably racist as well. So it's like, it's much more nuanced when you kind of look into the details. The ideas don't occur in a vacuum. And what ideas people think are obvious or kind of the status quo change over time as the society living in changes. Another thing I got from your book is how societies can be in flux. You know, for some societies, the equilibrium is persecution, rule of groups, and there is distrust and even outright persecution of out groups. And like you said in the book, some societies can exist in an equilibrium of conditional toleration where there are rules that allows for the existence and practices and way of life of certain groups legally, but not fully integrated into the legal system of the country. And things can go bad pretty quickly, like for the Jews in Europe. And of course, there's a full toleration states where the rule of law and protection of individuals as citizens is the equilibrium. So what I want to ask you is that given this dynamic, why do you think that the identity rules, as you call them, are resurgent currently in political ideologies, in media discourse? What I see is that People, especially on issues around social justice, Mm. when we talk about injustice towards certain groups, the usual fix nowadays is to re-emphasize the identity of other groups and advocate for their protection as a group. What do you think is responsible for this resurgence? Yeah, it's a great question. It's hard to pin it down exactly, but it's somewhat related to state capacity in my assessment. So I know Britain and the US best, I guess, so I'll talk about those. But I think my analysis would apply to other European countries like France as well. So in Britain, for example, there's a large, relatively large migration of people from the Indian subcontinent to Britain in the 1950s and 1960s. Also from the Caribbean as well, but particularly from you know, Indian subcontinent. And a lot of these people are Muslim. They're coming from what's now Pakistan, Bangladesh. And um, they settled in particular parts of the country, so like Bradford or Leeds in the north of England, which are quite poor places. And the way the state treated them it could have treated them like individuals and to some extent, but often it was easier, lower cost to treat them as a group. And so instead of thinking about every individual who has equal rights before the law, they'll think about the British Muslim community and leave the community alone, actually. And so things could be happening in that community, like children not being educated or things like honor killings or uh, recent cases of people grooming women or children for sex trafficking. So things could be happening in that community, which the state was not very aware about because the police didn't want to penetrate that society, wasn't very legible, and they were willing to liaise with the leaders of the group and and to use basically what we call, Noel and I call identity rules in that case. I think just because they were starved of resources, they didn't have members of a police force who were from most communities. So it's just easier for them to outsource that to some local community. But the result of that is that they basically, there's no presence of a state there. They're not actually governing in those areas. And that can have bad consequences down the line. And I I do think it's a scale matter. When you have smaller numbers of people immigrating 
and they disperse across the country, then of course they're going to just be treated like individuals and over time there'll be assimilation and you won't have those types of problems. So that was a problem with um, that some migrant groups have encountered in a country like the United Kingdom. I think France is the same um, with its Muslim population. In the US, and what I'm saying is somewhat controversial, so I should caveat it with just impressions I have. But in the US, I feel that the way party politics are, it goes back to the 19th century, actually. So it goes back to these party machines in the US in the 19th century, where certain parties like the Democrats have become the party of Catholics or of Jews or of African-Americans. Parties would have groups who vote for them. And so they get treated like a block. But if you look in the US, there's an increasing tendency. The Republicans have become a party of white rural conservatives. So they use identity politics, you know, all the time. And the Democrats then uh, are a party of diversity, but they also rely on identity blocks like African-Americans or Asians or Hispanics, rather than treating individuals as individuals. And so that's why the Democrats are shocked when we find Hispanics or African-Americans who voted for Trump, for example. And so I think there's always a tendency to do this. It's, it's probably... Um, Francis Fukuyama talks about patrimonialization, so the repatrimonialization of the state. So in his analysis, the first modern state he says was in China, and there are other modern states, but there's always um incentive to repatrimonialize, to like give things to people who look like you and you know, use personal networks. I think you see that even in modern democracies like America or UK, there's a tendency to do that. And that tendency becomes greater when there's a more heterogeneous population. So it's hard for the state to govern when he has a heterogeneous population. So there's more temptation to rely on identity rules. And so I think there should be, you know, people who understand this and want to uphold kind of liberal values should try and fight against that tendency. Your answer was very clarifying in a lot of ways. I also think about, I mean, when you talk about state capacity and how it may actually be cheaper for some states or maybe some class of politicians to treat people as a group rather than individuals. I also think about things like social interventions. This would apply mostly to the U.S. where things like housing policy and some other things treat people like a group. And in that situation, my sense is that even if the government has the capacity to deliver on certain interventions, it may actually have worse outcomes in the long run because it reinforces the group identity of certain class of people. So my question then is, we know that there are inequalities in every society. A good example is the U.S. where the history of the slave trade itself as sort of economically shunted the fate of African-Americans. And there is a clear case for some kind of justice in that regard. So how should a liberal state that also cares about justice, but that does not necessarily want to reinforce identity, deal with specific inequalities or injustices that certain groups may have suffered? It's a good question. I, this is obviously my personal opinion, but um, if you have a generality, some kind of generality norm, say that a past atrocity has like negative economic effects generation on generation to certain people, it could be the same thing, but it's also, for example, um, there's some study which showed people who descended from Holocaust victims also have more anxiety and are less successful in various dimensions. So it could be something else. I think it's better to treat the symptom. So like you have some 
transfers for people in poverty, right, basically, rather than treat people based on their identity. Because treating people based on their identity gets too complicated too quickly. If you have a recompense based on past atrocities, well, some people, despite their distant ancestors or their ancestors having past atrocities, are doing very well and don't necessarily need transfers, right? Some person might have suffered because they've had, like, you know, generations of horrible abuse, right? But it wasn't done to them as a group. It was done to their, like, individual ancestors, right? Their grandparents were raped or murdered or something horrible. So they might need help as well, but they wouldn't fall into the category of people needing help just because their ancestors were harmed by one event. And so I think as a matter of practicality, you want something general, some transfer system to help people in a lot of poverty, rather than picking out an, a unique event and then working out who's owed what, because it could be quite diversive, um, I think the case for recompense occurs if it's to the generation who were harmed and maybe their children. That could still work, I think. But I think when you get to the grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, it becomes too complicated. So I, I have a tendency to not be in favor of it. I'll ask you some quick pointed questions, curveballs like Tyler would say. Sure. Uh, China. I mean, China is a huge topic from history to geopolitics to economics and what's your what's your view of China? I mean, there's no individual liberty. It is rich or growing really fast. Yeah, well, it's not really that rich, but it's growing really fast. And it seemed to be emerging as a geopolitical powerful state. So What is your view of China? But more precisely, what do you think the West can learn about China's rise from the rise of Japan? I know you've written quite a lot about that. Like, I don't want to forecast or prognosticize. Asimov and Robinson were quite uh, bearish, quite critical of China in their Why Nations Fail book, and even more so in their more recent book, The Narrow Corridor. And I think... What the rise of China definitely, like certainly establishes is that there's no single like final resting point for societal development, which is like rich democracies. So people prior to the rise of China, they thought that there's you know maybe one equilibrium point everyone's moving towards somehow. Everyone will westernize, get democratic, get rich. And so now the rise of China suggests there's probably a path to at least comfortable levels of economic prosperity where you maintain an autocratic state. And certainly it's an autocratic state which, which legitimizes itself based on its economic success. Yes, I mean, I think we have to take that as given. So there'll be no necessary tendency for them to liberalize. What you might, one might expect is once people reach a certain level of income, when people are poor, they just want material security. Once they achieve material security, though, they become more interested in self-expression. And so that self-expression requires more like freedom, right? So you can expect there'll be more dissent, I think, in China. So people used to think that more dissent would lead to more pressure for democracy. What I think they haven't factored in is that economic growth and technological change means you have more repression capabilities or more technologies to persuade people. So the state can monitor the internet. I don't think China will become democratic anytime soon. I don't think it will become richer than America or the West, but I think it will converge maybe you know, in a similar way that other East Asian countries have converged. But it's an open question how long that can last. One challenge China faces is demography. So it's going to be an aging society relatively rapidly. That might change things as well. Though, though the effects of demography are kind of interesting because it's aging. It's going to both slow down economically, but also the pressure to reform will go down as well because old people don't like to change things very much. 
So pressure to democratize might also go down as it becomes older. So it's it's tricky to predict. But definitely there's more than one mode of economic development. And I think other countries in the rest of the world, like Russia or Middle Eastern countries or countries potentially in Sub-Saharan Africa, are now going to increasingly look at China as an alternative model to the West. That's already happened, obviously. Another question I'd like to ask you is, um, I mean, the U.S. in the last couple of days, we've seen cases of targeted attacks and abuse towards people of Asian descent. And I know you have a paper, I think with Remy Jedrob and uh, I think Noel, about the Black Death and how it was also a problem for the Jewish people in Europe. So I'm not asking for any specific policy proposition. I'm just saying that what lesson can we learn from history about how societies can deal with things like this, where a widespread unpleasant situation leads to hate targeted at a specific group. Yeah, it's definitely, there's a hypothesis called the scapegoating hypothesis in social psychology, which is when something bad happens, you look for someone to blame. I can't speak to the spate of anti-Asian sentiment in America. I don't know if it's a confluence of things. It's a combination of immigration concerns, which have shifted away from previously, I think anti-immigrant sentiment was concentrated on Mexicans and Hispanic Americans coming across the border. Now there's also a fear of jobs being stolen by China. So I think Trump, popularism, the rise of China, all contributed to people more aware of kind of Asian Americans and Asians. And then coronavirus being associated with China maybe is on top of that. But I don't think it's the sole factor. And I, I don't know, I, I can't speak to why why it's arisen. But, but certainly social psychologists talk about this scapegoating factor. And in the paper you mentioned with Remy Jedwab and um, Noel Johnson, we find evidence during the Black Death, which confirms that scapegoating was kind of part of what was going on. But in that paper, we have this countervailing effect, which is that if we think the Jewish community was particularly important economically in Europe, in a particular city, then we find that then they're more likely to be protected, especially the more severe the Black Death is. And so, so the two effects kind of go against each other. In the US case, it's hard to know how this will play out. I mean, Asian Americans are pretty, on average, like economically successful. But there's a lot of heterogeneity in the sense that Vietnamese Americans are much less well off than Japanese Americans. But it seems to me a common human phenomenon that the outsiders get scapegoated. But which particular outsiders in any point in time might vary due to background conditions? So in medieval Europe, because of those underlying anti-Semitism anyway, people blame the Jews for um, various things like killing Christ or ritual murder accusations. So they, they were primed to blame the Jews already. I mean, this is an excuse to blame it. And if you want to analogize it to the US, if, if it's true, I, I don't really know how much anti-Asian sentiment there really is, but um, you could say there was already building up anti-Asian sentiment for various reasons. And then something like coronavirus just added on to that. There's this debate. I haven't read much on it lately, and I don't know if it's still ongoing. The debate between historians of capitalism and economic historians, it certainly... Not new, but I think the New York Times uh, 1619 project just kind of brought it up. But in my own recollection, I think my first encounter with that particular debate was the publication of Edward Baptist's book. Pointedly, I'll ask you, was it a difference that was more about methodology or ideology? Mm -hmm. Because I seem to think that there was a little bit of both going on. Yeah, there's definitely both going on. I think the two have converged in an unfortunate way, particularly in US academia. I think it's less the case in Europe, but my way of thinking about it 
is that in US academia, the original spark of this was probably Fogel and Engelman's publication of Time on the Cross, which was this clear metric study of, of slavery in North America. And I think as a result of the disputes and debates which followed that book, and then what's known as the cultural turn in history, where historians became more interested in kind of what people thought about the past as opposed to the past itself, maybe, historians in America moved away from economic history. So they stopped reading economic historians. They didn't take courses in economic history. And they're not really interested in like learning the types of methodologies economists or economic historians use. At the same time, economic historians, maybe as a result of this, came closer to economics. So economics departments, they're studying econs, they're learning a lot of mathematics in graduate school. And then when they come to publishing papers and doing academic research, they're using, you know, regressions most of the time. It's like, you know, let's find a data set and let's, you know, do some empirical analysis on it. And the historians, they basically moved away from each other. So then with the rise of this history of capitalism, there's a kind of, you know, to be praised attempt by historians to say, we've abandoned this whole territory to economic history. Let's get back into it. We've got a lot to say about, you know, the history of slavery, its role in American development and economic growth and role in the history of capitalism. We've got a lot to learn, uh, to say about these topics. There's a lot not being said by economic historians. So they move back into that territory, which is laudable. But part of the problem is, is they misunderstand sometimes what the economic historians are doing with their kind of empirical analysis so there's a methodological gap but the other problem is is there's an ideological gap because the historians they want to approach what they call capitalism critically so there's some ideological development there and they they think that the tools economists use are somehow contaminated i think by being linked to economics and see those as linked to capitalism and may think they have to stand outside it and so the problem one has with a book like Ed Baptist's book on slavery is partly that the core results he was building on were from economic historians, but he wasn't properly attributing credit to their work. And then he was misunderstanding it or misstating it sometimes. And then even worse, it turns out he was misstating the qualitative sources as well. So um, there's both an ideological dimension and a methodological dimension to it, as far as I can see. I could say more about historians' capitalism. I don't want to come across as too negative on it. Maybe I haven't in the sense that I think there's plenty of historical research to be done and there's plenty that economic historians don't do. And it's welcome that historians are, are reintegrating with economic history or returning to their interest in economic history. It's just it's going to be a bit bumpy and a bit rough if everyone wants to kind of like criticize the other side overtly and also past work is not being acknowledged i think that was one of the criticisms economic historians had of the history of capitalism is there had been a lot of scholarship not just Fogel and engelman but a lot of scholarship on the economics of slavery and that wasn't being fully acknowledged in the books by the historians of capitalism I mean, as someone who is very, very much steep in as much economic history as economics, how do you think economics can manage its, I would say, bad PR problem with other social scientists? Because economists get slated by political scientists, by sociologists, by historians. Of course, I know some historians have risen to the challenge, but generally, how do you think economics can better integrate with other social sciences? Because it seems that the adoption of economic methods, the methods of economics in other social sciences is inevitable. Yeah, that's a, a, a good question. So I think it's happening. I mean, 
20 years ago, it was definitely the case. And like, if you read papers in the early 2000s or late 1990s, it's definitely the case that people were publishing in top economics journals, papers which had some history or some historical data, which were very bad. The history was very bad. There were papers 20, 25 years ago where the economists were ignoring the history. Now that's just not true. So the economists have actually got a lot better at taking historians seriously. If you want to do economic history at a top economics journal, they're going to really send it to experts who know the historical background. So if good economic history and good economic history published in economics journals has to take the history very seriously. And I think it's doing so. So I think it's just a question of like, we have to make that known and, and kind of be aware and do the best job we can. But I think people are doing it. So on that front, it's just a question of making that clearer. Um, and I, I think the recent Twitter kind of uh, fights over these debates often reflect more noise than sound. For example, there was a big fuss over an Econometrica paper about the myth of a frontier in, in the United States. And historians were, in particular, of like reviving you know, this, uh, this frontier thesis. But actually, they were doing something quite different. And so... It requires people to use social media less and jump on other people less and criticize them less. But I don't think economists are always the worst culprits. I think our press is worse than, than we deserve. Um, it's kind of, I, but I think that social media doesn't help. Oh, no, certainly not. My final question to you would be, what can economic history teach society today? I know that your sub-discipline shy away from specific policy proposals generally, but what is the benefit of studying economic history generally? And I don't mean becoming an economic historian, you know, but, sure. But I would say yeah. this, the benefit is a benefit to studying history to start with, which is just because it's in the past, we can take some emotion out of it and we can examine it more kind of coldly, dispassionately. And that's a benefit. So, for example, if we think about, you know, racial persecution or conflict now, we could be affected by our personal prejudices, you know, about like, if I'm thinking about, you know, these topics, maybe I'm prejudiced and I don't realize it. But if I'm thinking about what the Romans were doing say the Jews or to pagan or to, you know, I think about what was happening in the Roman Empire in the third century AD, it's a long time ago. (laughs) And I'm not personally invested in it. So I can be more dispassionate and I can test my priors. So say I have some particular priors about, you know, the market being good or the state being good or bad, or um, I have these priors, which are informed by my knowledge of contemporary events. If I study the past, it can push me out of those, you know, those priors no longer apply. It's like a different world. And so I could be more analytical. Today, you know, you might not study a certain question because it has political consequences, which might be uncomfortable. But if you study the past, it shouldn't have as many, especially it's a distant past, it shouldn't have as many of those consequences. You're not going to offend anybody or as many people at least if you study, you know, persecutions in the 14th century as opposed to the genocide in the 21st century or the 20th century. So I think that's one benefit. And then economic history in particular because it emphasizes quantification and hypothesis testing, it's like a further test on your priors. So it makes it even harder to smuggle in some prejudices or some personal biases. So I think it's quite a good check on things. My opinion has been changed uh, by studying these topics. So when I began studying the state capacity question, I was initially a little bit skeptical of it because I came from quite a classical liberal background. Like I was quite, you know, into kind of, you know, picking the market would handle a lot of things very well and being suspicious of, of a lot of state power. And I haven't lost those views, especially, but studying state capacity made me update my beliefs about those issues. 
So I think it's a good topic for people who want to understand how society functions and who want to think about it in a rigorous way. Thank you very much, Mark. It's been fantastic talking to you. Are you working on anything lately? Is there another book? Um, yeah, the so there are some projects. So um, a few things. Uh, one is um, there'll be an introductory economic history book with Jared Rubin about the origins of like how we got rich, how the world got economic growth, sustained economic growth. This could be more of an intro book. And I'm also working on various topics on 17th century England, religious persecution and toleration and formation of parties and related to the glorious revolution. So those are some of the new projects. Although none of these things are going to be out for a while. They'll take some time. I'm definitely looking forward to reading them. <laughs> great, yeah. I have great fun with this conversation yeah. as well. So thank you. My guest today has been Mark Koyama, economic historian at George Mason University. And I say thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, Toby. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasuntrapped.com. Oh, 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 oh,